This is a sound purchase. A podcast that does a deep dive to explore iconic recordings. Episode 16. Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong's 1956 release, Ella and Louis. Well, I discovered jazz music as a whole later than uh, most people. It was in my late teens. I got really into Louis Armstrong just because I was doing like a project for my A-levels. And because of Louis Armstrong, dug a little deeper. And of course, you'll then find Ella and Lewis and all of their beautiful duets. And that's when I first discovered this album. I grew up with this album. My dad had it on CD and it would come out a couple of times a year on a Sunday morning sort of thing. Amazing. Yeah. So this, this, was, a, this was a big album for him initially. This was him, in a way, just showing us or showing me a bit of culture. And, and it was one of those things where I'd never really thought of him as much of a jazz fan admirable this was one of the only kind of jazz cds he had temporary he probably only had about 10 but there was no 200 punk cds <laughs> jake how do do what hansen it's so hot right now hansel so hot right now hansel welcome everybody as i say to my classes sit down be quiet and listen <laughs> This is a sound purchase. This is a podcast exploring iconic recordings. We are here and we are introducing today, we are introducing our first jazz record. My task is monumental. I have to convince Jake Hello. to like this record. Jake, as ever, my co-host has sat some 30 miles away or thereabouts. I just can't stand jazz. No. I don't know why the red oh mist God, it's descends. Oh. It's not true. That's not true at all. <laughs> all commercial. Oh, obviously. No, and after he went commercial as well. You what know. are you talking about? Yeah, okay. <laughs> you may have also heard us talking to the wonderful, the fabulous Danny. Hello. Danny, hello. How are you? Oh, I'm all, I'm all right. I'm all right as I can be in uh, Liverpool. <laughs> Danny is in Liverpool. Jake and I are both on the south coast of the UK. This is all done with thanks to my rather shoddy internet, but nevertheless, we get it done. That's what we do here. Get the job to done. you, our audience. That's right. That's right. We are committed. Absolutely. You are the only people that we think about in our lives. Danny here is our vocal correspondent. That's the title that we've we're kind of sitting on at the moment until until we can get yeah until we can get a better one because i'm not quite happy with that one but we have dished out jazz correspondent to someone else that we all know tragedy and he's yet to actually make an appearance but he would be absolutely gutted if he lost his jazz correspondent title you can have multiple jazz correspondents. Jazz correspondent one and jazz correspondent two. Like jazz correspondent in the field and then like (laughs) the studio jazz correspondent. I'm more like a massive fan correspondent, whereas he's like lives and breathes jazz though, isn't he? Mm, Right. (laughs) All he does. (laughs) That would be hilarious. Like you'd have to, you're like, right. Jazz correspondent, you must now actually record outside because you're the jazz correspondent in the field. So go stand at the tube station <laughs> as we talk to you. Yeah. Okay. So we are here. Danny, our wonderful vocal 
and or slash jazz correspondent number two in the studio we are going to try and convince jake that the 1956 album by ella fitzgerald and louis armstrong humbly titled ella and louis is a sound purchase this is now the third iteration of the show and we're only in like episode 16 so we're ever evolving people ever evolving let's dive into some context armstrong is one of the biggest names in music history really when we talk about the greats of music we should mention bach mozart beethoven chopin and armstrong it's a very uh western centric <laughs> yeah. predominantly european themed uh oh, thing well, you've got going on Oh, I'm keeping it keeping it on brand for GCC. Did you see Adam Neely did a video on that a couple of weeks back about uh, music theory no. and and well, the original the original went for a really clickbaity title is of basically music theory is racist theory and white supremacy. It's really wow. interesting. Yeah, five minutes. Oh wow! Yeah. That yeah, that yeah. is so true though. It's like oh. everyone else was just forgotten out of the canon, and it's particularly just, as you say at things yeah. like GCSE level. White men. Mm. Well, especially when you're looking at the Western classical music mm. and so on, because you're only studying white yeah. men. Mm-hmm. There's no females that we talk about uh, at A level. We start to talk about Clara Schumann and people like that you know and we start to build in the extra layer but at GCSE it really is just like I mean one of the exam boards to study world music they do Paul Simon's Graceland <laughs> so we're going to study African music through the medium of an American middle-class Say white Pete male Gabriel but <laughs> no 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 Only that would dreams. actually be a little bit more that would be a little bit more authentic of course I mean, it's it's all a bit of a shambles, but for for me, I think you know whenever whenever you're coming up with jazz, especially your jazz, blues, African American culture, Louis Armstrong is one of the first people that kind of pop up there. Yeah, and I know that's a bit of a stretch to compare him rubbing shoulders with Beethoven and <laughs> Chopin and so on, but actually, you know, I I really do feel that that is true. Armstrong was a caretaker of jazz taking on the work of his idol Buddy Bolden, preserving it, remoulding it, and then passing it on down through Dizzy Gillespie and Miles Davis. The date of his birth is up for debate, apparently, so don't uh, debate me. <laughs> Students struggle to get their head around this when, when I tell them this. Because he was born into poverty in slave central kind of America. I want to say, what are you gonna say Jake? August 15th, uh, same as Madonna. Oh, August hey. is right. <laughs> Hey, it's generally accepted that he was born on August 4th, oh. 1901. So he was born into poverty. He was born, you know, in the height of kind of Jim Crow laws. Of course, the Civil War had been and gone and slavery was officially ended, except for it kind of didn't really end. And he was born to a 16 year old mother who was allegedly a prostitute from time to time. To make ends meet his father abandoned the family shortly after birth there are stories of louis armstrong a really young louis armstrong under five being around the brothel and even doing odd jobs sweeping up at the end of the day being a lookout and so on this is just no place for a child but such were the times 
and I doubt that Armstrong was and is the only kid exposed to such poverty and conditions. I, I would imagine there's still things happening today like that. However, students really struggled to get their head around the fact that he was never actually sure when he was born. And because obviously everything now is so, well, everything's just dated and you have your birth certificate, but people in, especially African-American people back in the time of slavery and legal Jim Crow slavery, they were born without birth certificates. So they don't actually know. And he grew up most of his life actually believing he was born in 1900. Oh, wow. Yeah. Anyway. His first horn was purchased by a local Lithuanian Jewish immigrant family, the Karnovskis. They often took Louis in, housed him, and gave him work. And the horn was a $5 cornet that he bought at a pawn shop. And that's P-A-W-N. <laughs> where, yeah, where you can sell your items and they give you money. And you can buy other people's items and so on. Go watch, uh, what's the guy's name, Jake? I can't remember what the guy's name is. The what? bald dude. The, oh, porn, the porn stars. stars. Uh, yeah, that's the name of the show. Um, Once again, that's P A W N. What's his name? But the show's called Porn Stars. It's great. I love it. Armstrong quickly rose and transcended the racial barriers of the time, becoming the premier trumpet player in America, if not the world. In 1925, he joined forces with his wife and formed his own band, the Hot Fives, later the Hot Sevens. And it was in this group where he was the leader and he finally got the chance to sing. Previous bands had not let him sing through fear of basically the way that he sounds and the way the way that he talks with his southern drawl. Band leaders were afraid to let him sing. Which is a shame because, I, I mean... I can you know. kind of get it though. Well, I was going to say if your goal was to sell records, but it wasn't then really, was it? Because the goal was to sell sheet music, so... Well, these guys weren't the writers, no, that's the yeah. thing. We'll talk about that in a moment because they, they were not the writers or the publishers. They were literally the performers, so they were making money out of recordings and concerts. But walking through the streets of New Orleans uh, in, I think, 2013 was when I was there, specifically Bourbon Street, you can hear imitations of Armstrong's vocal style pouring out onto the street from the jazz clubs. You hear it out, coming out of every bar... There's someone impersonating, I guess, Louis Armstrong. That led me to believe that it was more of a regional style of singing as opposed to Louis's personal style, although that could actually just be a bit of a tribute to him. You know, When Louis began to sing on records, he had to do it by singing into an acoustic recording horn. And this is another thing that baffles the children at school because they're so used now to all these schools have like condenser microphones and studios and so on that they they don't understand that we're not close micing everything on his early records. It's literally a band in a room. Surely, though, um, the concept of, like, doing a recording on your phone, like just putting your phone in the room and the whole band playing into that just to get a, a recording, surely that's not a foreign concept to them? Well, that's surely. the thing, Jake, is... Uh, Have we come that far already? Well, kids are not in bands anymore. Oh, that's true. You know, on the most part, kids are... As a friend of the show, Pablo says, they've got their synthesizer and their beat machines and they're producing their own beats and backing tracks and so on. So, yeah. That doesn't sound as fun. When, when Louis began to sing on records, he had to do that by singing into an acoustic recording horn. Often recordings were done live, so you'd have to position the band around the room according to their dynamic range, i.e. 
the drums would be furthest away, especially if I was playing them. And the double bass and the vocals would actually be closest to the horn because you need to be able to pick them up. But when Louis played the trumpet, he'd have to sit at the back of the room by the drums because he was so loud and overpowering. Yet this only kind of persuaded him to play louder. It was a bit of a calling card to be the loudest person in a way. You know, it was like a, it became his thing as as people would go to the shows to hear the loud horn. And also it was his way to stand out, especially in a big band in an orchestra, his way to be standing out there. Ella and Louis, I believe, was close mic'd, uh, which Louis was still getting used to at the time. And this meant that his techniques were not as professional. And you can hear him breathing. You can hear him swallowing if you're listening really carefully through headphones. Uh, but also when he's playing that trumpet, it is so loud, mm. so loud. Like they could have really brought that down in the mix. but you know it is what it is i think that kind of imperfection and vulnerability only enhances the closeness of this record mm, makes you feel Me like you're there in the room exactly yeah. yeah yeah so ella fitzgerald was 16 years armstrong's junior as armstrong was demonstrating his melodicism through improvised syllable singing or what has now come to be known as scat singing fitzgerald was still in school she was apparently an excellent student until her mother died and she began to take work in the local bordello as a lookout to make ends meet. So just two kind of roughish upbringings for these performers. She joined Chick Webb's band in 1935 and following Webb's death in 1939, she took over as the band's leader. Instrumentalists for this recording were Louis Armstrong on the vocals and trumpet. Ella Fitzgerald on vocals, Canadian-born Oscar Peterson on the piano, Ray Brown on bass, Herb Ellis on guitar, and my hero's hero, Buddy Rich on the drums. Neil Peart, big, big fan of Buddy Rich, considered him to be the greatest ever. And in fact, Buddy Rich is actually quite consistently rated to be one of the greatest ever, if he's not knocked off by Neil Peart, who knows. It is said that the singers and the band had played a benefit show the night before they recorded this album and they all went in the studio to lay it all down the very next day. This album was recorded live and in one go. And without rehearsals as well. And without rehearsals. They so they may have done it. different takes and it was literally just to change keys. The record was produced by Norman Gans who was Ella's manager and the owner of Verve Record, Verve Records, sorry. And we've spoken about them, Jake, when we were talking about Blake Mills. And I was talking mm. about how I'd always grown up seeing the Verve record label. And it was because of this album that I was aware of who Verve were. Uh, yeah, fill uh, in that one. Okay, his interest in jazz actually came from, this is Norman Gans, the producer and manager of Ella. His interest in jazz came from him wanting to fight racial inequality. <laughs> Each step that Ella took up the popularity ladder Gan saw this as his chance to react and begin to issue ultimatums for the audiences at the venues to be integrated, which the Beatles are lauded for when they were touring the States in 64, 66. But actually, Ella and Norman Gans were doing this some 30 years prior, which is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. Longreads.com state, this is a big one, given the musical firepower involved, it is an understated set. Most of the songs are down-tempo, 
Anchored by bassist Ray Brown's impeccable timing and intonation, the vocals are mixed well up front, as on any pop record. Gans produced, but Armstrong was given ultimate say over songs and keys. The material is drawn mostly from show tunes and Fred Astaire musicals from the Great Depression, written by such masters as George and Ira Gershwin, uh, Irving Berlin, and Hoagy Carmichael. The track list is a catalogue of some of the strongest melodies ever conceived. I got through that without a stumble. Not that. Well <laughs> I usually impressed. have to get Jake to read. <laughs> any, any long, yeah, any long bits yeah. and bobs. <laughs> I start to stumble, and then as soon as Jake looks at me, it even gets worse. I get like proper reading stage <laughs> stage fright. Okay, the two voices sound just incredible together. Mm. Ella's sweet, loving, expressive vibrato with Louis's distinctive husky southern drawl it's it's really it really is a kind of beauty and the beast sort of situation but it just it melds so beautifully together opposites attract wow exactly mm. and it's it's that thing and this is this is where i'm going to get into the singing jake you'll like this one i play the louis armstrong recordings for any student or adult that tells me that they can't sing or that they sound terrible or anything like that it's a, it's a huge problem it's a huge problem going through culture and education most of most of our children grow up listening to us saying oh i can't sing in tune i'm no good at singing all of this and they they take that on themselves and before they've even really tried to sing or to express themselves through music, it's automatically like, oh, I haven't got a musical bone in my body. We uh, we had a massive meeting a couple of years ago where the head teacher and the deputy head got up and told us that it's all about growth mindset and you need to say, oh, I can't do this yet or I'm not good at that at the moment. Like I need to work on it and recognize that it, this is a fluid thing. You need to work to get better. And that very afternoon, the deputy had walked into my music class and I said, sir, why don't you go give it a, give it a try with us? And he said, oh, no, no, I can't do music. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just the thing that all of us like leap to straight away. You know, it's, it's an embarrassment. It's, it's a, we don't want to put ourselves out there. So full respect to singers, especially singers like Danny who on a whim when we were at university I said oh I want to start like a a hip-hop funk band <laughs> and Danny went oh okay I guess I'll rap yeah cool no problem. let's give it a go <laughs> exactly. I can be a rapper right <laughs> yeah you, you impressed you impressed a lot of people when we played at Concord so like you fake you know. it till you make it you just got to do it exactly. with confidence yeah <laughs> exactly all of this is compounded and not helped really not helped by uh, the, well, I was trying to think of a funny way to say this because he's not a friend of the show, Mr. Simon Cowell, and all the X Factor and where we just start taking the mickey out of people because they, they haven't done a good performance, basically. Mm. However, this is my call to action, people. If Louis can sound like this and still be endearing and loved and just wholly loved worldwide, you can sing My Body Lies Over the Ocean, so now shut the f*** and sing, would you please? <laughs> <laughs> it's touched a nerve, as you can tell. 
this is this is my daily thing at the moment. Well, actually, not at the moment. Coronavirus has been the best thing ever. I'm sorry, we're what? not actually. Well, <laughs> yeah. no, sorry. Where Let me put that into this? context. Rephrase that. <laughs> Let me put that into context. Given that in a normal day, a big part of my job is classroom singing, so it's fighting these little battles all the time with 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds going, I can't sing. I don't want to sing. I'm embarrassed to sing. Bloody, bloody, blur. And it's, it's all the time. And it's constant and it's relentless. And you, you win a couple over and then you get the next lot in. So coronavirus has actually put a stop to all classroom singing. So Is it's it? been actually, yeah, huh. you're not allowed to not allowed to sing in, in the classroom. Does it let out like too many germs maybe? Pretty much, much yeah. yeah. And we oh. got we got told off because an English class was singing Happy Birthday the other day. Oh. And we got told off for it. Yeah. It's forbidden. Uh, well, and yeah, kid- and it's so weird. But anyway. It doesn't help the kids aren't allowed to wear masks, are they? They they are now. Yep. Oh, they, they are now? The government's like fully backtracking. Oh, for fuck's wow. sake. Anyway, don't get me started. Don't get me started. <laughs> Not a political podcast. It's yeah, yeah. Sorry, thanks, Jake. This is right. not a political podcast. Mm-hmm. Oh, what would I do without you, Ben? You're just you're that's, on the money every time. Yeah. That's why it's the only reason you keep me around. You could just talk about all of these albums by yourself and come to a conclusion. But who would listen to that? <laughs> that would that Someone would be would. no fun because everything that I would talk about would obviously be a sound purchase. I don't know. You yeah. might kind of listen to something. And go, God, that's a lot of crap, isn't it? And I'm going to talk about that and how crap it is. Why the kids no, of today are wrong. You're wrong, that's kids. That's my bag. No. <laughs> that's like uh, the principal Skinner. Maybe I'm outdated. No, it's the kids that are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, I, along with many others, have grown up musically spoiled. And I want to declare it that you two have grown up musically spoiled as well because it is now the norm to have artists writing their own pieces and performing their own songs including us in our various projects and bands. Mm -hmm. Prior to the Beatles, the world of performer and composer remained mostly separate. Elvis, I think, wrote one song or performed one song that he wrote. Rather, Frank Sinatra barely even wrote a song. He's going to feature a heck of a lot today. He's got his own sting and everything, Jake. You're going to love it. The Brill Building in New York was literally just a building full of offices of songwriters churning out songs for publishers. And this is what Jake was talking about, where most of the money in music actually came from the publishing of songs, not from the performances or the royalties and so on. Mm. America has a rich history. And I know that's not necessarily something that we, we say a lot, given that America's only 200 and something years old. But America has a really, really rich history from the late 19th century through to the first half of the 20th century, where truly popular songs were collected into the sometimes physical, sometimes metaphorical Great American Songbook. That is the where these songs were plucked from. And that's something that we're missing, I think, worldwide. New Zealand have tried to do it, but really we've only had music since like the 50s like properly properly popular music and even then it's the just the number of artists that we have over there is spotty in general when you compare it to the number of artists mm. here and so on and it would be great to get like a a proper uk songbook up and running because there is a huge rich history mm. of music here but it's just not celebrated i guess in the same way Something I, I found when I was younger, it, it wasn't a cool thing to do loads of covers or to just be a covers band. Like if exactly. you were just covering other people's songs, you were just like, you weren't, you weren't a real musician. You, you weren't know, original. 
Yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's just a musician's stigma. I'm sure if you go up to anyone who's not a musician, they, they honestly don't care who's playing what songs, you know, hence, you know, yeah. why wedding bands are a thing and things like that. Yeah. But, yeah, when particularly when I was, like, 16 or so, like, wedding band? What? Go play other people's songs? Yeah, what? Yeah, yeah. No. Oh, I, I do that. No, I'm going to make though, it like... with my amazing songwriting. <laughs> I really struggled. I think some of it is an ego thing as well because, you know, you want to show off how good you are at writing songs. Well, most of us have got into music for the creative side of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Most of us use music as a as a way to express ourselves in ways that we can't normally say things or do things. So, yeah, for for me, the writing of music is hugely important. As much as the performance, I've I've never been really comfortable in a covers band. I know that I set a covers band up when I was at university, but that was for a project for university where I got, you know, I got a first for that. So I was pretty, pretty chuffed actually. <laughs> just, just going to drop that in there. Just going to uh, drop that in there. That, the uh, well, Danny was part of that band and we got I selected was. to go and play a like law graduation gig. That was genuinely like supposed to be one of the biggest gigs that I've ever played in terms of it was in London. It was in, in like this massive ballroom. Kylie had played there a couple of weeks before us. Like it was supposed to be this big thing. We were getting paid quite a bit to do it, weren't yeah, we, Danny? It was like 165 yeah. pounds each. Oh, wow. And it was the worst gig of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Not because we played bad. It, they they were just so indifferent to it. Well, yeah, you know, that's what happens. They were yeah. just waiting Sometimes. for us to get off and the mm. DJ to come on, basically. That's that's the vibe of the whole the whole event. That's the context done. That leads us quite nicely into our game show segment. Danny, I forgot to tell you, we play a game show. I'm so excited for this. I have been listening to your podcast and it was like oh, cool. the main reason why I said yes to uh, join in. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> to beat me at a game. Yeah. 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 Bring it. <laughs> this game is called Overs and Unders. I'm going to give you numerical facts about the home of jazz, New Orleans. Oh, no. uh, you need to judge whether these facts are too low or too high. Okay. If the number that I give is under, i.e. too low, you're going to hear this. Under pressure. If the actual number is over my estimate, then you will be hearing this. Nice. Good choices this week, nice. right? Yeah. Okay, as always, dear listeners, if you would like uh, to be in a chance to win a sound purchase prize pack, yes, alliteration, head to a soundpurchase.com and sign up to become a friend of the show. That's our new fan club, the friends of the show. <laughs> you can't see it, but Jake is laughing. Do you see the merch? I did some new merch, Jake, the other day. You can get a new friend of the show t-shirt, friend of the show tapestry. Seriously, is it an actual tapestry? Is it a tea towel? Is it a normal towel? I th I think it's a I think it's like a flag, like you know, like right. a Glastonbury flag. Okay, sort of thing. We're gonna have to buy yeah. one and find out. Yeah. I mean, either way, if we see a sound purchase tapestry <laughs> flying at Glastonbury, I will be paying big bucks. This episode, we have two new contestants with Danny playing for Alicia Cook from New York, and Jake, you are playing for Erica Wright. I hope I said that right from Dallas. Danny and Jake need to score higher than 55%, although because it's out of 10, they'll need to score more than 60%, which is the equivalent of a pass at GCSE Music. So, question number one. 
New Orleans is widely regarded as the birthplace of jazz, and due to its melting pot of various cultures, grew to become a capital, uh, sorry, grew to become a cultural capital of the USA. This was evident as they became the first city in the USA to hold a performance of opera in 1820. Now, is that too early or too late? Over or under? Over. Over or I too early, as in under? that is under. I am confused by the over and under, but I think that the first performance would have been before that. Or under, under then. I'm going okay. for under. Under pressure. Danny was right. The first yes. uh, opera performed in the USA was in 1796. I did do my master's in opera, so if I'd gotten that wrong, then that would have been really embarrassing. That's true. Can you can you just remind us of, of your actual thesis? Uh, oh, my thesis. I, I looked at Tchaikovsky's final opera, Queen of Spades, but I was, I was looking at it more from like the director can shape how the audience is going to perceive the opera. So... Um, you know, what he wrote has been widely discussed as as representing him as a person and his like own battles with him with his depression and his homosexuality. And um directors have used that to perceive his writings in different ways than he actually intended it to write. And it's like to what extent is that actually okay? And it's it's almost like that death of the author, like, um, does it matter what he actually intended or is it just gonna be picked apart or is it okay to reimagine things and yeah so that's what I delved into focusing very strongly on queer theory as well because he was homosexual and a lot of people say that you can hear that in his writing and they go as far to say that because he uses this technique that shows that he's gay and it's it's all it's all very interesting to me well to a music nerd like me it's interesting (laughs) so are you saying that it's bad to pick things apart no, no, I love it, but it was okay. Too... Good, because that's pretty much kind of what we do here. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I love, yeah. I love picking things apart. Number two, New Orleans is the home of poker, poker and jazz. What a combo! In the two thousand and six World Series of Poker, American Jamie Gold was crowned champion, cashing in the record-breaking six million dollars. Is my estimate under or over the correct amount? Oh God. I've got no idea. And you're saying this is the highest ever, six million. Yeah. So yeah, I'm gonna say it's over. over that. The the actual yeah. amount is my over. estimate is under. So your yeah. your estimate okay. is too low. Dun dun dun. Yeah. The the answer. The yes. correct answer was twelve million. Which again, I was surprised at because I thought it was going to be a lot more than that. Number three, the Superdome is the largest enclosed arena in the world with 75,000 seats. Is my estimate over or under? Over. I think it's more than that. I just feel like that's too many people. Okay, the correct answer. 74,295 seats. So, so it's yeah, so close. I know. I know. That's not so close. That's so close to 75,000. It's massive. And they've got, so that's like the football stadium. And they use that to, to like temporarily rehome everyone when Hurricane Katrina hit. 
Number four, Café du Monde is a New Orleans institution. Famously, they serve beignets, which are like a fried dough kind of or flattened donut with tons of powdered sugar sprinkled on top. There are three in an order, and it's estimated that they sell 15,000 beignets a day. Is my estimate under or over the correct amount? That's so much money. I don't know how you can make that many in a day. Yeah, but people are ordering more than one drink, right? I think it sounds too much, so I'm going to say your estimate is over the actual amount. Over? Well, when I, when I went to Café du Monde with my family in 2013, I think we had a, a serving each. So, the correct answer... was actually 30,000 a day. Oh, lordy. So is that 10,000 orders? Okay, number five. Although little is known about him, one of Armstrong's heroes and greatest influence, Buddy Bolden, is said to have invented jazz, and that's J-A-S-S, -S, in 1890. Is my estimate under, as in too early, or over, as in too late? I think it sounds about right. Under. Okay, just to be different from Jake, I'll do the opposite of what, what you said. I think your es estimate is over. Yeah, I'll go for it. I'm so sorry, Maybe Alicia. Ah, oh, for God's sake. And now we know that Jake really did look at the answers because the correct answer was <laughs> 1891. <laughs> no way. Let's take a quick listen to Ella and Louie by Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong from 1956. I thought I'd found the man of my dreams Let the rain pitter patter But it really doesn't matter If the skies are grey Heaven and my heart beats so 
that I can hardly speak. It's not the pale moon that excites me, that thrills and delights me in Paris. Chestnuts in blossom, holiday tables under the tree. The first track is Can't We Be Friends, written by Paul James and Cat Swift. Unlike other episodes, as we're talking about songs that weren't written by the artists, I've actually compiled a list of people that recorded prior to and some recorded after Louis and Ella in 1956. So this was previously recorded by Bing Crosby in 1929. I took each word she said as gospel truth, the way a silly little child was. And by the chairman of the board, Old Blue Eyes, and the namesake of my wonderful cat, who used to have deep blue eyes as a kitten, but now they're gone to a greyish green. Frank Sinatra. I get the impression he's going to come up a lot. He's going to be here forever. <laughs> That's why we've got a sting. And on this 19... Oh, sorry, on his 1955 concept album in the wee small hours a good side note there most people seem to think that it was the beatles that invented the concept album but no it was the chairman of the board a good decade earlier so this this is a really just a lovely piece it just kind of gently plods along Opening with a solo turnaround from Oscar Peterson on the Ivories. He's tickling those piano keys and it reminds me of the theme to Frasier. Hey baby, I hear the blues are calling tossed salads and scrambled eggs. Quite stylish. <laughs> <laughs> Is that why you sent me the thing the other day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ella sings the opening verse. They seem to they seem to follow actually a bit of a pattern on all of the songs where on most of them it's a solo verse, then the other person sings a solo verse, and then they come back together for the third verse in harmony or thereabouts. I thought I'd found the man of my dreams. Now it seems this is how the story ends. He's going to turn me down and say, can't we be friends? Most of the songs are Ella singing the opening and the verse actually follows an A-A-B-A structure, which means they, there's two turnarounds that stay the same. Then there's a separate turnaround. Then they go back to the first turnaround. Louis then enters creating a dialogue within the song. Yes, I thought I knew the wheat from the chef. What a laugh. This is how the story ends. I'll let her turn me down. Say, can't we be friends? Previous versions like Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby were actually just from one person's perspective. So it's actually interesting that they managed to turn it into a dialogue 
turning it almost into a relationship story as opposed to just one person kind of, you know, a bit nervous about being put in the friend zone. The trumpet solo foreshadows the coda ending to this piece with a da 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 And then it ends with one of Jake's most favourite things in the world. Remember, I am trying to convince you here, Jake. With you are the, trying to convince me because I do doo-wop. famously hate jazz. Yowza. Yeah. <laughs> it but finishes. It's, it's so cheesy but classic. Oh, like, it's so good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the big, like, doo-wop uh, ending. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's in it's in that classic Louis kind of oh yeah kind of voice. Yeah. Great Brilliant. impression. Thank you. Did you like the mic technique there as well? I sat back from the mic. Yeah. I think this track is really easy to hear Louis Armstrong's sort of idiomatic approach to melodies and tackling songs because you've got. Ella, like you said, like plodding along, like it's just a nice little song and she sticks very much to the melody. Whereas then when Louis Armstrong comes in, he just in classic Louis Armstrong style, he removes some of the notes and it's like, da, 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 instead of like going around the melody, stays on one note. I'll let her turn me down, say can't we be friends, He interlaces his scat singing. You can really tell as well that, like you said, the beauty and the beast where she's so like everything is perfect and her diction is perfect and then he comes in like slurring and and grit and even skipping some of the words so yeah i think this is a good introduction to um the contrast between the two vo- voices yeah yeah that was that was really well said <laughs> awesome oh, yeah well, thank you yeah. Very much. <laughs> that's why you're that's why you're the vocal correspondent and yeah. or jazz in the field correspondent i let him turn me down and say Okay, the next track then is Isn't This a Lovely Day? Isn't This a Lovely Day was written by Irving Berlin for the 1935 film Top Hat. It was previously recorded by Fred Astaire, whose version is much more upbeat and produced. The weather is brightening, the thunder and lightning seem to be having their way. Then it was recorded by Billie Holiday. Let the rain pit a but it really doesn't matter if the skies Who brought the gravitas to the song, kind of in a similar way that Ella and Louis would replicate within their version. Although Billie Holiday's singing for me is I don't know, she's she's got a she's got a kind of accent when she sings, and it kind of takes me out of the song a little bit. Whereas when you put it up Well, maybe it's just because I know Ella's version better. I just don't think you can beat Ella's singing on any of these tracks, frankly. Mm. And, yeah, I think she is the standard of what just a gorgeous voice is. I mean, just the the opening of this song alone, when it's just her and the piano. Yeah. 
and it's just it's just impeccable like oscar's playing for one is just on point and then her range and just these smooth silky tones the weather is frightening the thunder and lightning seem to be having their way oh it's just so beautiful and then again louis armstrong comes in (laughs) with this time with the full band yeah he's got this like this depth and oh man i like literally get lost it when louis armstrong comes in in this bit it's like oh my god and he's got the swagger so lost in Mm. this yeah in this moment yeah it, it begins with peterson doing another turnaround it seems to be that Peterson was the band leader and he basically started all the songs and got everybody hearing the key by doing either a big glissando or some sort of cycle of fifths turnaround. But then Ella begins the vocals and her voice is just so pure in the song. The key sounds higher than the previous one, which gives her voice a much more vulnerable quality. She's singing in a higher register than she was previously, I believe. I'm not the singing correspondent, so... Well, but because Louis Armstrong was in charge of picking the keys yeah. and that was Ella Fitzgerald saying, you know, I want you to be comfortable and she just went with the flow. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it really works. It really works in this song. Yeah. It sounds amazing. During Louis' verse, Peterson's piano takes a bit of a back seat and Herb Ellis's guitar starts to wheedle all over the track. You were going on your way. Now you've got to remain. That's my new favourite verb, wheedle. <laughs> I always thought it was like whittle, like, you know, with wood and so on, like little whittly parts, but actually what people are saying when they're saying that is wheedling. An interesting choice at the time because guitar wasn't actually an overly common melodic jazz instrument. Cool. It had only really been used for chord comping and it wasn't for another, well, in the mid-60s when guitar became the instrument of choice in rock music. That began to translate over into jazz a lot more as well. Wonderful. And then there's this dreamy word painting in the descending sequence in the melody where the singers sing the line, let the rain pitter patter, but it really doesn't matter if the skies are grey. Let the rain pitter patter, but it really doesn't matter if the skies are grey. The tension of the line is resolved perfectly on skies. They both land on the note on the skies. And this is only further enhanced by the third and final verse where both of them actually sing in harmony together. And, well, frankly, I've been doing research for two weeks now on this album and that just that one moment hasn't left my mind. And, well, my family now are a bit upset because that's all I'm whistling and all I'm singing, and all I'm humming, <laughs> so much so that the Phoenix Foundation released a new record on Friday. If you didn't know, Jake, that's... Uh, I didn't know. It's, it's a good one. You should check out the video for Landline. That's possibly the most Phoenix Foundation video yet. It's, it's absolutely outrageous, <laughs> and you'll love it. But traditionally, you know, Phoenix Foundation are a big band in my household, except I overplay them usually, so it wears pretty thin. But I've been asked to put the Phoenix Foundation back on to prevent me from whistling this little de, uh, descending melody. The trumpet again takes a solo that develops the melody, and I'll across this whole album, 
he doesn't really stray that far from the melody in his solos. He's just kind of taking the melody and developing it and embellishing it a little bit, but it's not really, you know, he's not really doing anything, any sort of improv or anything. I guess they recorded it all on the day, so he didn't exactly yeah. have a lot of time, although I guess that's kind of what improv is. And Louis's tension and release harmony at the end always gets me. It's a lovely day. Yeah. It's absolutely it's really stunning. Beautiful. Yeah. Getting back to his trumpet solo though. Yeah. I I really love the trumpet solo particularly in this song because it does it 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 really like reflects his vocal style there's like a lot of wavering that almost sounds like oh was that the right note Mm. and it just doesn't matter because it's his charm and you just i mean i don't know you can't help but smile when you're listening to it it's so full of character i did yeah i really love this solo in particular you can you can spot his trumpet playing a mile away oh yeah you know and it's it's very New Orleans with like the their second line parades and it's very kind of of that time and of that that place. Whereas, you know, when you listen to the later guys, the cool jazz guys and people like uh Chet Baker and Miles Davis, it's all so clean, but his is is dirty in a really good way. You know, his sound oh, yeah. is filthy. It's not very clear, <laughs> it's really muddy and muddled and yeah, it's it's really good and distinctive. Long as I can be with you, it's a lovely day. The third song then is Moonlight in Vermont. Written by John Blackburn and Carl Sussdorf. Previously recorded by the famed Jerry Mulligan Quartet in its most successful incarnation with Chet Baker, i.e. the best incarnation. Not to be mistaken by... Captain Beefheart's song of the same title on his Trout Mask Replica record of 1969. Famously, the lyrics do not rhyme. Pennies in a stream Falling leaves a sycamore Let me put on my English teaching hat. Each verse is an example of a haiku poem. This is a form of poetry that comes from Japan. Generally, it's talking about nature. So moonlight in Vermont, that's pretty naturesome, if that's even a word. (laughs) A haiku contains three lines that follow the structure of 575. So five syllables, seven syllables, and five syllables. If you want a really good example of... A haiku, I suggest you watch Taika Waititi's Hunt for the Wilder People, where they have a haiku done by the main character, the protagonist, Ricky Baker, and it's called Kingy You Wanker. 
I take it neither of you have seen that film. No. No idea. Oh, my God, it's so charming. <laughs> uh, that's another thing. I'm not really allowed to watch it anymore because when I first got my hands on it, I watched it about five times in a week. <laughs> it's really good. Sam Neill's at it, Jake, so you gotta you got to watch it now. Oh, we do. like. Oh, I've got to watch every film with Sam Neill in. That is true. We do like um, Sam Neill. Okay, so the solo is a mixture of forceful yet somber, very reminiscent of the funeral parade or the first line parade in New Orleans. And then here's a quote from a website that I forgot the source and that's not very good of me, but she is the wind under the falling autumn leaf on Moonlight in Vermont. Despite the non-rhyming and occasional clunky lyric, for some reason, every verse is a haiku, as I've said, she makes the, some startling improvisational leaps. Never at odds with the melody, but always lands on her feet. And I think that really does sum up Alice singing across pretty much the entire record. Yeah, I think I think this really shows those leaps off <laughs> and the non-rhyming lyrics. It, it's quite like this haunting, like beautiful vocal, really. And I think my favorite part, though, about this song is after the solo where Ella's doing her thing, leaping all over the place. If you listen closely, you can hear Louis Armstrong just let out a growl. <laughs> and it's just it's so this? faint, but it's, like a... it's right after the solo. It's like, Who's there sing down the highway and traveling? <laughs> I think that's brilliant. That's now going to be probably my favorite thing on the whole yeah. record, just the... Okay. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> so dirty. <laughs> yeah. Go on, son. It's either that he's really upset at his solo, like he's not happy, he's not feeling it, or he's really feeling it. I mean, you've, you've covered all the technical aspects of it. I'm just going to say it just makes me want to go to like an old timey-wimey bar. I should have some mm. whiskey. I should mm. be, you know, drowning my sorrows. Life is bad. With your, with your like fedora or your Homburg hat on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know. Coat. Yeah. I've been hired to crack a case and exactly. the, the I've been kind of muscled out of a building by some people and told, you know, if I keep on it, uh, I'll, I'll get shot and I'm feeling depressed and down and someone's about to come in. and, and Your fancy um, brill creamed hair is now all messy. Yeah, exactly. Someone's yeah. going to come in and turn it all around and I'm at that scene in the movie. Right. I was saying to you earlier, a lot of this album gives me a really big fallout sort of vibe. It's, it's one of the ones that doesn't. This yeah. one gives me... Noir. Noir. Kind of. Yeah, exactly. But not black noir. Not black noir. The best character. Taken down by an arm and joy. Moonlight in Vermont. You and I and moonlight in Vermont. In The next song then is They Can't Take That Away From Me, written by Ira and George Gershwin. First performed by Fred Astaire in the 1937 film Shall We Dance? The way you wear your hat, the way you sip your tea. Billie Holiday performed a version in 1937 also. The memory of all 
Charlie Bird Parker did a rendition on his Charlie Parker was Strings album in 1950. And there's yet another Frank Sinatra rendition from 1954 on his other concept album, Songs for Lovers. The way you haunt my dreams. No, no, they can't take that away from me. I feel that this song has a message of loving the imperfections about someone. I would even extend it to say the same about the music. Like we're saying perfection is overrated. The imperfections of music, the little growls are what makes an album. It really reminds me of the song Everyone Knows Juanita from Coco. If either of you have seen Coco. Well, everyone knows Juanita. Her eyes each a different color. Her teeth stick out and her chin goes in. And her knuckles they drag on the floor. Those aren't the words. There are children present. Her hair is like a briar. She stands in a bow legged stance. And if I weren't so ugly, she'd possibly give me. I'm not allowed to watch Coco. Oh, the newish Disney film. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not allowed to watch it with Chloe because it'll make her too sad. (laughs) Yeah, I get that. Yeah, I was rolling rolling tears, man. Like, that killed me, that film. What I take away from the song is is you can really feel their personalities Mm. and that the comedy element that Ella particularly gets it more in in her live version, like her live performances, you can hear her like comedy a bit more. It's quite playful. Yeah, it's it's really playful. And and you even hear like when Louis Armstrong is is like the way you hold your knife, I can't do his voice, but (laughs) he's even like a little giggle comes with it. And you can like hear him smiling. The way you hold your knife. The way we dance. Yeah. Like as he's singing. Yeah. And he's got a lot of ad libs like swing it boys and uh swing it boys. Yeah. That bit at the end where he's like, Would you repeat that again? Would you repeat that again, dearie, please? No. (laughs) He says that it's just it's so full of character. Yeah. And I, I really love that. But the thing that I also really love about this song is Ella Fitzgerald improvisation around the melody is just flawless. Like she goes all over the place and still comes back to the melody and it's it's like still note perfect and it just works and the harmonies just oh I just I love this song so much. And the call and response between the two yeah. of them is again that. I playful, didn't realise it was improvised. <laughs> 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 So that's just yeah, how good she right? is because it's live. Yeah. yeah, it's just oh man, she slays me, and this song in particular, yeah, it's just wow. No, no, they can't take that away from me. No, they can't take that away from me. Will you repeat that again, dearie, please? No, they can't take that away from me. 
The next song is Under a Blanket of Blue, written by Jerry Livingston, Marty Symes, and Al Nieberg or Nyberg in 1933. Previously recorded by Benny Goodman for the new Benny Goodman Sextet in 1954. And you guessed it, Frank Sinatra on his perfectly frank live broadcast performances 1953 to 1955 wrapped in the arms of sweet romance this night is ours this is the first song where louis takes the first verse and there's some really excellent piano work done by peterson But that's all the notes I have for this one. It's a light song. Yeah, it's just it's just really easy listening, isn't mm. it? It's it's nice, nice little. I don't want to say filler because they're all such amazing songs. But um, oh, we don't mind. Yeah, we, don't, we don't mind calling tracks filler tracks on this podcast. Go yeah. for it. Uh, well, but it's like you say, Jake. It, you know, <laughs> even in our previous albums that we've studied. Sometimes we just enjoy listening to the album so much that we get we get a bit lost in it and we forget to take notes. Yeah. Let's dream a dream of love for two Wrapped in the arms of sweet romance Under a blanket of blue Under a blanket of blue Well, the next song is Tenderly, written by Walter Gross and Jack Lawrence. Previously recorded by Sarah Vaughan in 1947. The evening breeze caress the trees Tenderly Art Tatum on the Art Tatum Solo Masterpieces Volume 3 in 1953. The opening piano glissando and trumpet climb, I'm kind of always expecting to hear the swagger beat from Me and Mr. Jones by Amy Winehouse yes. after that. What kind of fuckery is this? Yeah. That's what I was trying to think Every of. time. Yeah. Ultimately, I am left a little bit disappointed because they don't have the song from like, you know, 50 years later happening on this song. But we're back to Ella singing the first verse and Louis responding to her calls with a trumpet. There are some big leaps in the melody. The evening breeze caress the trees tenderly. Which make the melody kind of quite dreamy. So it's not just, I think it's disjunct where it's all, all the notes are within steps of each other. We're going quite conjunct and going quite away from each other, which is just makes it dreamy. And Ella's going up and into her head voice and then back down within a matter of notes. So it's quite masterful. It sounds like at the end, Ella is doing a Louis impression. She 
she's her little definitely doing. That's yeah. so good. Like, and she's I so only picked up that. on that today, listening through headphones. I've always thought that it was yeah. Louis. So <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah, really? yeah. So like, she's that convincing <laughs> that I always just assumed that that was yeah. Louis doing his thing, but actually, I heard it today, and I was like, hold on. Yeah. Have you seen her version of Mac the Knife live in Berlin? Oh, what's the next chorus to this song now? This is the one now. Yes. She does a Louis yeah, yeah. Armstrong impression in that as well. She's so good at it. Oh, see, I mean, it's. I guess you'd call it parody, but I think it also is just like her admiration it's like she's a, a homage isn't it of, yeah yeah absolutely she's quite open and honest about like what influence he has on her yeah singing i'm just gonna and her check music. this out right now uh that's that's one of the most uh <laughs> one of her most famous performances isn't it because that's where yeah, she completely forgets all the lyrics and just starts everything fumbling it through up. it but does yeah. it so flawlessly <laughs> yeah. yeah oh man yeah <laughs> So the next song is A Foggy Day, written by Ira and George Gershwin, previously recorded by Fred Astaire in 1937 for the film Damsel in Distress. A foggy day in London town. Charles Mingus for, I can't even, I just can't even do that title, Pithecanthropus Erectus. <laughs> And of course, Frank Sinatra on his Songs for the Young Lovers in 1953. I was a stranger in the city, out of town were the people I knew. So my only note here is that Louis barely does any singing except he sings the first verse. And then Ella pretty much takes over for the rest of the song. And even his first verse is so like conversational. Yeah. The way. Yeah. And she comes in singing all over the place. Exactly. Just, I'm literally listening to it now, and he does only do one, they say the one verse, but that is still about half the song. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But it's, it just doesn't, it feels like as soon as his verse is done, that's it. He doesn't really do much for the rest of the song. Did you have notes for that one, Daddy? Not much, to be honest. Okay. Was <laughs> so this the one where he gets his tambourine or he gets to go to the bar? Yeah. Or maybe, you know, given his love for laxatives, he's running off to the loo. Okay, the next song is Stars Fell on Alabama, written by Mitchell Parrish and Frank Perkins, 
The first use of this song was by Guy Lombardo Orchestra in 1934. We lived our little drama. We kissed in a field of white. Previously recorded by Armstrong and his orchestra in 1952. There's another piano glissando and trumpet part to lead off. Ella's voice is so soft and I wrote sensual. We lived our little drama. We kissed in a field of white. There is a power and assertiveness to this, yet it's almost a whisper. She's being so quiet, but actually she's still hitting you with the power despite the dynamic contrast and I've said this is a contrast to fellow soft singer Chet Baker who's one of my one of my favorites whose whisper vocals they just don't lack the authenticity but they do lack that booming power perhaps much like his character he prefers to be in the dark shadowy corner of a bar or a hotel room with needles in his arm but you could walk past him without actually hearing him speak that's how quiet he sings Whereas I get the feeling that Ella's presence in any room would be felt without exaggeration. If she walked into the room, you would kind of just know by the aura. And her singing comes across that way as well. It's certainly how she sings is that you just, you wouldn't be able to miss, miss her when she walked into a room. You know what I really love is um, their call and response in this song. Mm. It's just so effortless. And it, I mean, it does feel really improvised. Like yeah. Louis Armstrong, it's almost like he's not even sure of the lyrics. He's just picking out little <laughs> bits that she says and repeating it, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And this sort of lazy ad libs that he does is it's really like laid back and, and it complements to the sensuality of her voice really nicely. And then they just seamlessly switch. Suddenly he's doing the lead mm. and she's doing these little ad libs. And it, I, I, yeah, I really rate that. But I was going to say a history about the song. You know, it was written about an actual event that happened. The no. stars fell on Alabama. It's written about a meteor shower. Oh. That happened in 1833. Wow. And that's, that's where they got the inspiration for the lyrics. Um, it's a, a meteor shower near Muscle Shoals, if I said that oh, right. Oh, yeah, Muscle yeah. Shoals. That's a huge recording place. Yeah. Yeah, that's, so, uh, uh, yeah. that's massive, Muscle Shoals. I, I assumed, actually, when you said that there was history, it was written about history in, in Alabama, I assumed that that was going to take a really negative turn. Oh. That's that's where I thought it was going. But, no, that was quite pleasant. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the stars actually falling. Yeah. <laughs> My heart beat like a hammer. Beat like a hammer. My arms wound around you tight. And stars fell on Alabama. The next song is Cheek to Cheek, written by Irving Berlin, first performed by Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers in the 1935 movie Top Hat. Heaven, 
I'm in heaven And my heart beats so that I can hardly speak Also recorded by Guy Lombardo the same year Heaven I'm in heaven And my heart beats so that I can hardly speak And of course Start spreading the news. Frank Sinatra got his turn in 1959. Heaven, I'm in heaven, and my heart beats so that I can hardly speak. And of course, famously, Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga recorded a version in 2014. Oh, baby. Everyone's recorded a version of this yeah. song. <laughs> Me and Stefan are doing one at the moment. Yes. It's been our lockdown project. <laughs> well, we're not we're not so much recording a song, we're just filming us dancing cheek to cheek. Well, no, here's the thing, right? Because of, you know, social yeah. distancing. Although in rugby you also you always talk about cheek to cheek when tackling, which means your cheek against the other person's butt cheek. <laughs> That's how I'd like to dance with you, Jake. <laughs> Do you guys need a moment? Should I leave you to it for a minute? Oh, I mean, no, it's okay. We're an old married couple at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so Louis starts this song and there is a lovely syncopated groove. Heaven. I'm in heaven. But that's that's all my notes. They're getting less and less. Yeah, I, I really like how it's the Louis Armstrong starts this one and he starts it. It's quite like just straight keeping to the melody. Mm. And then Ella Fitzgerald's like improvising around the, the melody is just astonishing. Yeah. That I, I can't remember the line, but I feel like this is another example like where she gets more towards the sort of live version of Ella, where she's really like relaxed into it and they're having fun with this song. And, and the playfulness comes back in with Louis Armstrong when he goes like, mm, heaven, I think that's possibly <laughs> like the, the dirtiest, best little line in this whole album. And yeah, you can really feel them like vibing off each other and just having fun with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really, it's a really good one. Yeah, so Ella Fitzgerald's improv is amazing on this. I was listening to someone talking about her vocal style and like saying how much you can learn from singing by singing along with her. Yeah. And I really feel like that this is my go-to shower song and it's just all <laughs> over the place, <laughs> you know, and all the, the embellishments she does. And as a singer, it's just like really impressive to listen to and try to emulate. And I feel like I learned a lot from singing, particularly in jazz style. Really great. From this song and, and trying to emulate what she's doing. Um, and it's, it's just a good tip for all of you aspiring jazz singers. Like Really great. Yeah. Uh, just musicians in general. And, I, I keep trying yeah. to tell, you know, again, my, my kids at school that you should be trying to emulate your heroes. That's, that's, mm-hmm. that's the start of you finding your own voices by mm. kind of melding all of your heroes together. Yeah, and particularly like which you're saying for doing like for on the melody side of thing and being all over the place, a really good way of of, of learning like getting a, a line down on guitar, for example, sing it, and then yeah. play what you've sung. Yeah, you know, 
and you will come up with much more musical things than just run a scale. But that's the thing is going back into my, my rant about teaching and singing. We're all natural singers. Every single person on this planet can sing unless you have a damaged voice box and you actually need like the little to talk kind of thing. Then you'll sound like Louis. Then you might sound (laughs) like Louis. Yeah. But, you know, we, we sing as children. We sang all the time. That's all we did. We learned our ABCs through singing. We learned, you know, Old MacDonald How to Farm. We learned how to sing. And that's a skill that every single else. person has. That's why we're better at creating melodies through voice than we are on our instruments because we've been playing the instruments a lot less time than we have been singing. The penultimate song is The Nearness of You, written by Hoagie Carmichael and Ned Washington. The song was debuted by one of my favourites, another one of my favourites, and I would say friend of the show, although I'm not sure if he's alive anymore. Glenn Miller. It's not the pale moon that excites me That thrills and delights me Glenn Miller famously just disappeared over the channel and was never found. Of course, Frank Sinatra recorded his cover in 1947. It's not the pale moon that excites me. The one Bing Crosby did his rendition in 1954. It's not the pale moon that excites me, that thrills and delights me. And most recently, or one of the most recent ones, was Nora Jones on her Come Away With Me record. She closed that record with this song in 2002. It's not the pale moon. That excites me, that thrills and delights me. My only note for this one is that it's just a really nice, gentle, slow dance, just kind of shuffling along. It's not the pale moon that excites me, that thrills and delights me. It's just the nearness of you. It's really, it's just perfect. Ella's voice in this song just really speaks to me. She was such a private person when it came to talking about her personal life. She didn't share anything. People didn't know what was really going on, uh, you know, behind closed doors. Mm. And as people pick apart pop stars today in particular, she managed to keep that to herself. But in a song like this, you can really hear and feel all those emotions and all that depth that she she must have experienced in her life, even if you don't know the details. I feel like you can uh, get really get lost in this mood that she creates. Where just yeah, I I just I really love the way she can you she can uh, express emotions through her voice. Mm. 
you could just get lost in this song and that feeling of, uh, you know, being near someone where nothing else in the world matters. And it's just, it's really beautifully done. The right to hold you ever so tight and to feel in the last track on this album is April in Paris written by Vernon Duke and Yip Hardberg it was written for the Broadway musical Walk a Little Faster it was first recorded by Freddie Martin in 1933 April in Paris chestnuts and blossom famously recorded by Count Basie and his orchestra in 1955 one more time. And of course, start spreading the news. Frank Sinatra in 1951. April in Paris. Chestnuts in blossom. I, I seriously think there's only one song that Frank Sinatra hasn't done on this record. And for me, this is just another gentle slow dance to the end of the night. Final final call has been called. You're Captain America and Peggy Carter. You've had to slip the band another $20 to just play one more song sort of thing, you know. It is the end of the evening. It's the end of the record. April in Paris. Chestnuts in blossom Holiday tables under the tree It's another song where the dynamics of the band rise when Louis starts singing like we like we heard in the previous songs where they can play nice and gently when Ella's singing because she's got that kind of vocal dynamic constraint whereas Louis just he's out you know balls out and proud all the time yes April in Paris chestnut blossoms yeah I agree it's, it's just it's a it's a nice one to sort of round off the album. Mm. It's, you know, beautiful vocals, but just really easy listening. And it's like, ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel complete. Exactly. Okay, this album yeah. was beautiful. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Till April in Paris. Whom can I run to? So, well, we have reached the final part of the show where I asked Jake and Danny a series of questions. First one then, 
Jake, because I, f- I feel like you're going to give me much less of an answer. Probably. <laughs> What's your favourite track on this album? That's a really difficult one. I'm probably going to say, Can't We Be Friends? I just like it. Really? It's a good yeah. opener. It's a very good opener. It's a very strong but opener. But does it rival all about Black, Black Shuck? Come on, that is the best <laughs> opening to an album ever. Uh, obviously not. I mean, yeah. there's there's only like maybe one other opening to an album that's as good as Black Shuck, uh, which we have discussed previously. Uncontrollable Urge. We agreed it was. So was that? Uncontrollable Urge. Uh, I don't know if it was Uncontrollable Urge. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Danny, what is your favourite track on this album? So, I mean, I feel like it is a bit of a cliche because it has been, you know, more. It's there's more covers to this song than any other song, and that is cheek to cheek. But it's it's because of the vocals. It's just like I said before. Just Ella's improv is amazing, and um, I cannot help but smile when I hear Louis Armstrong come in as well with all that filth of his voice. Yeah. And yeah, so it, it has to be cheek to cheek. It's my go-to shower singing song. <laughs> it makes me smile every time I hear it. Yeah, it's gonna be cheek to cheek. So just to clarify, it's not because you picture Jake and I dancing cheek to cheek. Well, now you've ruined it for me. So thanks for oh, that. <laughs> hey, wow, ouch. Uh, okay, my my favorite song on this one is, of course, "Isn't It a Lovely Day." Like I say, I've been humming it for two weeks. The descending motif is stuck in my head, and probably now forever will be. I just, I just can't stop, and it's, 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 yeah, it's like a leech on my brain. The second question is, who would you like to hear covering a song from Ella and Louis? Uh, am I allowed to say Frank Sinatra? Start spreading the news. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. What was the one that he didn't do? I, I can't remember. No, um, uh, no, that's not my actual answer. My oh, actual not. answer. My actual answer will be Scott Walker. Oh, okay. Callback. Yeah, callback because this album is once well similar to Scott Scott Walker album. A lot of it's obviously been written by a lot of some lot of the same people. Mm. Mm. To be honest with you, as to which one, to be honest, he'd, he'd probably do a, a fairly decent job of any of them. Okay, Danny. Oh, that's a tough question. That's not something I've ever thought about. I don't. I don't actually know if I'd want to hear it, anyone within the jazz genre. Mm, right. Or sort of even remotely within the jazz genre doing these songs. Shite. Well, a lot of them have been done so many times, but I just think it, their vocals are impeccable. Yeah. So maybe I'd, I'd go for something just completely different and. I don't know, let's get Stormzy doing a song and see what he comes out with. Oh, okay, yeah, I like that. <laughs> Just a, re- a reimagination, yeah. I am going to go with a bit of an off-ball choice as well for the, for pretty much the same reason. They've done a cover of a Louis song before with We Have All The Time In The World and they did a really good kind of funky R&B sort of hip-hop version of it. I'm going to have to go with The Fun Loving Criminals. I would okay. really like to hear... Huey Morgan kind of croon his way through I don't know it could be any of them really cheek to cheek might be a good might be a good option the third question is does Ella and Lewis rank in your top 10 Jake sure why not yeah why not where where are you gonna put it like 
I like ten albums, and only ten albums. So the album I'm going to have to start disliking is going to be Scott Walker, so it's going to go in at number ten. Who, ironically, you just said you wanted to hear a cover of. Yeah. 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 Okay. I think it, hey, it's, I hate Scott Walker now. Sorry. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to also put it in at number 10 for me. Although I'm I'm questioning, does it go above Devo? Oh, yeah, you've got Devo really low in your list. Actually. Yeah. Despite I'm the fact it's okay. easily the third best album we've done. It's going to be number nine. <laughs> I'm trying to do quick maths here. With Blake Mills' Hi-Ho at 10 and the Foo Fighters' Wasting Light at number eight. Knocking out Devo. Are we not men? We are Devo. Okay, and then the final question for you, Danny and Jake. Do you think Ella and Louie from 1956 by... Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong is a sound purchase. I'll let you field this one, Danny. Is a sound purchase? What do I think people should buy it? Yeah, yeah. you know how like Tony used to always say uh, right. sound. Him and him and uh, yeah. Wheels would always say sound that's, together. That's, that's the pun yeah. in the name you see. Yeah. So it's yeah, because yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely, hands down, it's number one on my list. <laughs> oh, uh, maybe number two. But only sec- because number one is another one of their albums. So <laughs> is that Ella and Louis again? Least, oh, Porgy and Bess oh, with the orchestra. Ooh, wow. Okay. Oh, there is some juicy <laughs> tunes on there. Okay. There is some right. dirty songs on there. All right. So yeah, if you're not going to get this album, you need something that they have done together. So yes, go and purchase this sound. And Jake. Uh, what what Danny said. I mean, I'm okay. too intimidated now to say otherwise. So um, good, good. I yeah. feel like Danny's Danny will beat <laughs> me up if run. I don't agree with her. So so my choice to have. I'm very passionate yeah. about this album. <laughs> my choice to have Danny as the person in my corner was actually a good choice to make. <laughs> well, I'm so happy we swayed you, Jake. Absolutely, no, good album. <laughs> yeah, I say I'd not heard of it before, and I did see it as Ella and Louise when when <laughs> Stefan sent yeah. it to Ella me. Ella and Louise, uh, bringing it back full circle. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So that that, uh, uh, that concludes our episode on Ella and Louie. Make sure you join us next time when Jake is trying to convince me about an album. Should we tell them, Jake? I don't know. We might make Danny a bit jealous. Uh, yeah, we should tell him. We should tell him. What are you going to try and convince me on next week? I've got to convince you that Justified is not only a great <sighs> album, it is the best album. Oh, oh my god. <laughs> Amen. Oh. I drink to that. <laughs> I cannot wait. I mean, it's certainly the peak of anything that just uh, JT's done, my boy. Yeah. Uh, and we'll be getting are we getting Brendan back in for that one? We're going to have our pop correspondent Brendan Lyle yes, coming back Brendan, to talk uh, talk to us. Who hates pop. <laughs> who he's the pop correspondent who admittedly hates pop unless it's like alternative and yeah. kind of not mainstream pop. But he's going to be talking to us about probably one of the most mainstream pop albums of the last 20 years, Justified by Justin Timberlake. And it's going to be great. I'm excited. Alrighty, I am Stefan and this was A Sound Purchase, a podcast that does a deep dive to explore iconic recordings. This episode was lustfully laboured over by producer Paul Loughran, You can show your appreciation for the episode by liking, sharing, commenting, and subscribing. Each engagement makes this effort all the more worthwhile, 
And the best way to grow this podcast is by word of mouth. All support is appreciated. You can check the show notes and up-to-date top tens list and other musings at asoundpurchase.com. You can engage with us on social media under the handle soundpurchasepod. You can support us by purchasing a Sound Purchase t-shirt, mug, stickers or a tapestry by going to asoundpurchase.com and clicking on the merch store. Other episodes of A Sound Purchase are available at all of your favourite podcast platforms. If you've enjoyed the sounds during today's episode, visit your local record store to pick up a copy of Ella and Louie by Ella Fitzgerald and Louie Armstrong. Support your local businesses and artists. <laughs>